0: All right, we are back into the book of Isaiah, so if you have a Bible open to Isaiah chapter 9, if you've been a part of our Advent series, you know we've spent a couple of weeks. This passage has actually appeared in all four of our weeks of the Advent celebration. We have all four of our candles going today as well, and we'll light that fifth one during communion here in a little bit. But today, we're just going to read verses 6 and 7 from Isaiah chapter 9. This is on page 573 in those red pew Bibles. So Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
1: Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we ask God that you would impart to us through looking at Isaiah uh, what you want us to hear. We are blessed by you, Lord, and we hope to bless you in return with our worship and praise and how we... Live our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at great empires of human civilization, we can think of some really, really powerful regimes, really powerful governments. And we can go back to ancient Egypt, and ancient Egypt, they held power for thousands of years. We look to the Hittites, who were in power for over 400 years, ruling over modern day Turkey, Syria, Lebanon. And the Persian Empire was in power for over 200 years. It covered over 2 million square miles. Then a guy named Alexander the Great came by and ruled the Greek Empire and became the most powerful empire in the world. That lasted a few hundred years until the Roman Empire came by. And that was the next great empire. And that empire actually contained within it 20% of the world's population lasting about 500 years. And then you can look over to China and to Asia and the Tang Dynasty. It lasted 300 years until they ran out of orange juice. And then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then there was the Mongol Empire, right? Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan comes through and that empire lasts about 100 years. And then power is moving back to Europe. And then we have the Spanish Empire, the first truly global empire. They go all across The oceans, they have half of South America, most of Central America, Mexico, a lot of Northern America. Also, you can see the influence by which countries speak Spanish today. And then the French come along with this guy named Napoleon. Now, what do all of these powerful empires have in common? Really great food. (laughs) (laughs) Egyptian, Persian, Greek, Italian, Chinese, Mongolian, Spanish, French. I mean, it's all really great food until the British Empire comes, right? <laughs> and then, and it's the British Empire, so I had to separate them because once I got there, it was not happening. One of the greatest hoaxes of the Brits is for us to come to think that dry, crumbly bread, as long as we call it a scone, is good. Like, it's, it's just like, it's not. But their fish and chips are excellent. Anyway, I digress. I digress, okay. Thank God for them though, because they are also the best thieves in the world. Have any of you been to the British Museum? They've stolen everything. Like, (laughs) they've stolen from everybody. No one is left alone. But they preserve all these really great artifacts for us and these antiquities actually. We wouldn't have them if it weren't for them, I don't think. But they've also stolen Indian food. And you don't go to England for English food, you go for Indian food. This is an Advent message. I'm going towards food. Okay, (laughs) back to the British Empire. And then it's the Soviet Union, and and then it's the United States. And now, what do all those powerful countries have in common from the French and before it was food? But after, because British, American, and Russian food is just never mind. But what do all of them have in common? They all end, they all ended. I mean, aside from the United States, which we're currently still in kind of our superpower status, but it's really only just a matter of time until our reign, our power is lost. And all of these empires, they've come and they've fallen. They're gone. Now, in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, is not like these other empires that have just come and gone. Now, is this really true, this belief of the kingdom of Jesus lasting for everlasting, or is this just kind of one of those cutesy Christian beliefs that Christians have and they just kind of throw out there? During the Advent season, we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, through Isaiah 9, verse 7, and what these verses have shown us thus far is that a child was born... Jesus, who is the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Good Shepherd, and in him is the perfection of counsel, power, love, peace, justice, and righteousness. Keep in mind this was written several hundred years before Jesus' physical birth, 2400 years ago from us today, and we took a look at Jesus as the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace a couple of weeks ago. This morning we're going to take a closer look at verse 7 which is going to give us some more insight into peace, justice, and righteousness, as those words are in there, and how our world needs peace, justice, and righteousness this morning. We see and we experience so much inequity around in our world. We see and we hear about so many wars and injustices and unrighteousness in our world, so many wrongs that need to be made right. And so to think about peace, justice, and righteousness, this celebration of Advent... It's actually something that occurred 2,000 years ago. And it's not about Christmas trees and presents and shopping and the exchange of presents or even something really great like family gatherings. That's not the purpose of Christmas. It's not what our society has painted for us and what we do on December 24th and 25th. Actually, it starts like right after Halloween now. See, Advent isn't that shallow. It's a celebration of Jesus ushering in peace, justice, and righteousness. He made that available to us between us and God at his first coming. And at his second coming, there will be this peace, justice, and righteousness that will come in its final form into the world. What has happened in between Jesus' first coming and second coming these past 2,000 years thus far have been evidence of how inadequate we are to usher in our own peace, our own justice, and our own righteousness. I mean, Isn't it proof? It is proof that we need God, and it is only God who will be able to bring this about. In our sections of Scripture that we've been looking at this past month, we've looked into distress and anguish and darkness and gloom, and how those people of God experienced that until they saw a great light. This great light is personified in the person of Jesus. For to us, a child is born. Now this isn't just some positive thinking or willing oneself to goodness that brings us to light. It's that the great light exists in the person of Jesus. Given to us by God, to us a son is given. Christianity isn't some distant philosophy or some intangible idea. It's this intimate relationship to be experienced in the person of Jesus, where love, joy, hope, trust, peace, all of those things can be known, where Jesus upholds his kingdom with justice and righteousness. Now, in looking at this wonderful Advent prophecy found in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9, we have to look back to what happened before this. So let's look back to before the Israelites had a king. And the reason why we're going to do that is in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21-22, it tells us that the people turned against their king and their God. So, what existed prior to this? Before having a king, it was the period of judges. And during this time, it's a really turbulent time, it's a real mess. To get a glimpse as to how bad and chaotic this time was, look at the last verse of the book of Judges, it's Judges 21-25, and it reads this, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you imagine if everyone in the Bay Area just did what was right in their own eyes? Crazy. It'd be like the Warriors and the Raiders and the A's all winning the championships at the same time. It'd be like this whole chaotic thing, right? These people thought, you know, we'd be better off. if We had kings like other nations. How often do we look to governments or to politics or to people to solve problems for us rather than looking to God? And here's a really strange thought. Why do we look to ourselves to solve these biggest problems when we ourselves are our biggest problem? Does that make any reasonable sense or logical sense? So then God allows them to have a king, and so they have a king, and the kings, like the great empires of the world, they come and they fall, and they fail spiritually, they fail morally, they fail in all different ways, but the people were always looking for a king to sit on the throne of David because that was a promise God made, to King David, that a king would reign forever and the people of God were expecting this. And so after this, there were these four centuries of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then in the New Testament, we're kind of brought to speed with the Gospels, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you went from the Old Testament into these Gospels, if you did not have a background as to what we just talked about, with the judges and the kings and the promises made to King David, then this wouldn't mean as much to you when I'm going to read Luke chapter 1. But now that you have this background and you have this, listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So the prophecies of God coming true. And to anyone with familiarity of God's promises to David, namely the Jewish people, this is mind-blowing. This is coming true. This is happening. Yet people are always looking for who will govern next. The elections are right around the corner. Everyone is looking forward to who will govern next. And here's the funny thing. Right after those elections, the day after those elections, people will be looking at who the candidates will be for 2020. Right away, right? And people have been like this throughout history. We're always looking for who's next. Not going to happen with the second coming of Jesus. There is no next. That is it. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And back to Isaiah 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the perfection of Wonderful Counsel. He is all-knowing. He is mighty God. He is all-powerful. He's everlasting Father. He's all-loving. He's ever-present. He's the Prince of Peace. And only in Him will there be everlasting peace. Either this is truth or it's not. Either this is true or it's not true. Now the burden of the proof to those who don't believe this to be true is to explain the thousands of years of prophecies which have proven to be true. How do you explain that? If this is not truth, how do you explain the thousands of years that have happened in world history? And how through the ages those empires and power could not change what God had already predestined? Yet all these powerful empires, yet still it all points to Jesus. None of them have wiped out Christianity from the face of the planet, even though the Romans initially tried to until Constantine. The rise and fall of some of these empires were predicted in the Bible. It's all listed for us in Daniel chapter 2. Don't have time to go through that, but it's all there. And so 30 years after Jesus' birth, we find Jesus saying in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so how did the people back then receive him? Most of them not very receptive. Most of them not so much and who could blame them really if you, if you just kind of look at Jesus where does this guy come from like nowhere and who is he no credentials no credibility in fact he comes from a very questionable background who's your dad like who's your dad like you can't even tell us who's your dad like your biological dad is not joseph And today, we wouldn't struggle with that. And I think we kind of look at that like, oh, what's the big deal? But back then, that is extremely scandalous. That is something his mom could have been stoned to death for. And so, questionable family, questionable education, questionable experience, everything about Jesus is questionable. And then he just jumps on the scene and he tells the people, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you're like, what? Who are you? Not much has changed today. People didn't believe in Jesus then, just like people don't believe in Jesus as their king today. It's the same thing. People question our king's motives through the church. They question our credibility. They question everything about us. Not much is different when we tell the people, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Dallas Willard, one of my favorite modern-day philosophers and authors, defines the kingdom of God as this. It is the range of God's effective will. What God wants to be done is done. It is an everlasting metaphysical reality, the natural home of the soul, God and his reign from everlasting to everlasting. So, the range of God's effective will where God wants done is done. His kingdom is wherever he wants it to be. No empire could have ever declared that. There is no king who could ever declare that. All of them had borders. They all had borders. They all had to worry about other invaders or where they were going, whether it was Pharaoh of ancient Egypt or Cyrus the Great of Persia, Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar, Genghis Khan, King Philip, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria, Peter the Great, all these guys. Donald Trump, you know, all these guys. Joke, um, this is a joke. A joke right? I saw some of you get like furious just now, like your eyes. Just like, like you're going to just tweak out on me. Like, oh, okay. like, I'm kidding. Abraham Lincoln, how about that? Yeah, a- Abraham Lincoln. All gone. Except for Donald Trump, but he's not on that list. I was just kidding. Okay, so but all those guys, all gone. All those empires, gone. Except for the United States, we're just kind of still living in the time right now. But it'll come. It's coming. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. In John chapter 18, verse 33, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus about His kingdom. He asked. Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered in verse 36 and 37, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Makes total sense, doesn't it? This is how kingdoms work. They fight. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now you go 30 years prior to this, and it's a guy named Herod. And this guy Herod is so threatened by the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus that he sought to destroy any opportunity by murdering all toddlers and babies under the age of two. This is found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. And then you fast forward And you come to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were wondering about the kingdom of God. And they asked when the kingdom of God would come, in Luke 17. And Jesus answered them in verse 20. Luke 17, verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So, what is God saying in these interactions with Herod, the Pharisees, Pilate. What is he saying in all these interactions? It's this, that Jesus is king. Whether we like it or not, this is what it is. And the kingdom is here. Now, we won't see that literal throne yet. That first coming was not about that. The second coming, we will see that. And that reign will be forever everlasting now we might think that the ultimate goal of god's kingdom is peace justice and righteousness and many people in the church think this too they think that the gospel is a social justice gospel they think that it's what we are doing it is not those are byproducts of unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord Those are byproducts of Jesus, and we focus so much on what, what we're doing, what's happening, on all these things, when the real focus is on who. It's Jesus. It is Jesus who saves so that we can experience peace, justice, and righteousness. There is no what without the who. People grow in what love is, not because of the ideas, principles, or theories of love, but because of who they experience that love with. The concepts of peace, justice, and righteousness are to be lived out in relationship. We can't have those what's without the who. God. What we have whether we think about education or money or possessions, they mean little if we don't know who we are without those things. Who are you without those things? The Christian is a child of the king without those things. Your identity is in Jesus. Your identity is not those things. And his kingdom has no borders. It is for everlasting where there are no other kingdoms, there are no other politics, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now you notice how God rules versus the empires of old. Empires of old would rule with an iron fist, right? They would seek to conquer more lands. They would tyrannize people. They would take resources that did not belong to them but God's kingdom is gracious and he works in the minds and the hearts of people sharing with them his love the gospel of Jesus I mentioned Daniel chapter 2 a few moments ago and now we're going to go into Daniel 2 but not into extreme detail but in Daniel 2 King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and so he seeks interpretation of this dream So Daniel is recruited to interpret this dream and in this dream there was this statue that had all these different elements of them, all those elements representing different empires, different kingdoms within world history, all of them falling at some point to one another. The same chronology that I just laid out for you in the empires, the same way, Greek empire taken over by Roman empire, Persian empire taken over by Greek empire, it's all that order. This is what I want to point out, is prior to Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 is this prophecy of all these empires falling, chronologically, but when we get to verse 44, this is what Daniel says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Here's the thing about Daniel's prophecies in Daniel 2. Everything prior to verse 44 has come true in terms of those empires falling, Persia to Greek, Greek to Roman, and so on. All come true. So if all those empires have come and fallen, as Daniel prophesied, before they even existed, he talked about them. Why isn't verse 44 true? If everything has come true prior to verse 44, why isn't verse 44? See, all the other kingdoms will come to an end, which has been true through world history. It's clearly defined by Daniel as to which kingdoms would fall. And the kingdom of God shall stand forever. If Daniel's other detailed prophecies came true, why not verse 44? And it's all made possible because of Isaiah 9, verse 6 For to us a child is born. That's Christmas. That's Advent. That child, so precious, so innocent. That child. For to us a child is born. And how do we receive the kingdom of God? Like a child. Luke chapter 18 verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And how is this possible? How is this done? Why is this done? Now let's look at the last sentence of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I don't know how. I just know that it's by the zeal of the Lord of hosts that this is all going to happen. Zeal. This can also be translated as jealous. And when we talk about jealousy, we automatically get to this negative connotation of what jealousy is. But let's not go to that definition. Let's Try to reframe that and look at the jealous disposition that a husband has for his wife or a wife has for their husband, not because they're insecure or things are going bad or whatever it may be, but because they just simply have a deep love and a deep concern for one another. That whatever is causing that jealousy is ripping them apart, whether that's a career, an addiction, an inappropriate relationship, whatever it is, it's this type of jealousy. It's the jealous disposition of a parent for their child. Not because they're fearful, not because, you know, whatever, those negative things, but it's simply because of their own wisdom and experience of being a parent and hoping for their child and seeing that, you know, if you hang out with those people, you're not going anywhere very good, very fast. And that jealousy there to pull them away from that negative influence Because that thing is pulling them away from what a loving parent knows is possible for that child. The zeal of the Lord for who he is. The ardor of zeal of God for his own people. That he is indeed wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. How else could the kingdom of God exist if not for the zeal of the Lord? How could it exist? Peace, justice, righteousness, they're all linked to who is on the throne. And if he does not have that zeal, that passion for his people, how is that possible? Now regarding peace, justice, and righteousness, let's look to a few sections of Scripture in the New Testament. Regarding peace, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13-16, through 16, That's in regards to peace, that Jesus himself is our peace. Now in regards to justice and righteousness, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's all about faith in Jesus to receive justice and righteousness. No one can provide for themselves peace, justice, and righteousness in their own life, let alone provide that to other people. It is only provided by God through the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Jesus himself proved that it's all God and that it's not what you come into the world with because he came into the world with nothing. Born to a poor, uneducated family, into an insignificant town, not to a noble family. No one would have pegged Jesus as the Savior of the world. Nobody. That was God's plan all along. Why? Because it's all about Jesus, not about the stuff around him. It's not about his material wealth. It's not about all these other things. It's just about Jesus. And when we share about the gospel, when we talk about Christmas, it's not about all the other stuff like what our church does. Our church does awesome things. We feed the homeless. We serve refugees. We're involved with human trafficking and education inequity and at-risk youth. We're involved in all those things. But those are byproducts because of Jesus. We're not about those things. Because without Christ, we don't have those things. Who cares? Spend the money any way you want. Do whatever you want. But it's because of Jesus who leads us by love and grace that we do those things. And He chose us. Here's the ironic thing. You know, he comes with nothing. And how often in your life have you been most influenced by someone who is not the wealthiest person in the world or the most influential person in the world or whoever? Who led you to Jesus? My dad was mine. He's a nobody. (laughs) Nobody knows him. There's nothing special about him. But he's the most influential man in my life that brought me to the Lord, led me to Christ, discipled me, shared with me the Bible, all these types of things. And the story's probably the same for you. You don't have some like celebrity Christian in your life that brought you to God or something like that. Do you? I don't know. How many of you were led to the Lord personally by Billy Graham? Like, uh, who did that? Now, listen to what Paul wrote in First Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse 26, we're gonna read. Through chapter 2 verse 2 and it's going to point out even what Paul really focused on for consider your callings brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong that's what he did with Jesus Great education. He came from the rabbinical school in Jerusalem, trained by Gamaliel. This guy knows all this stuff, and this is what he writes. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speeches or wisdom. Because he could have, because he's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he's a Pharisee. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was it. That was it. God gave John a prophecy in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 it reads this the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever it's this Advent season it's a time we celebrate Christmas and we're really accustomed to giving and receiving gifts this time of year it's not by chance that you are here Maybe you're thinking, like, oh, it's Christmas, so I go to church on Christmas and Easter. You know, Christers, you know, maybe you're one of those. But you're not here by accident. And I have a question for you. Have you received God's gift of grace? Have you received that? Because you would accept a gift from a stranger right here at the church. Right? If someone just came up to you and said, hey, Merry Christmas, and gave you a gift, you'd be like, oh, thank you, like a gift card to Pete's or something. Well, thanks. And you would take that $5 gift card. Are you not going to take something that is priceless and is invaluable from your creator, God? He's giving you a gift. It's not a $5 Pete's card. I mean, this is everlasting life. To know peace, to know justice, to know righteousness. Because you can't know those what's without the who. And he wants to open that up to you. To receive by faith the peace of God. That you are indeed justified by grace for your sins. That you are seen as righteous by holy God because Jesus took your sins upon himself. That he sees you as clean. That's his gift. He wants to give that to you. You'll accept a $5 pizza card, but not that? Receive that this morning. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gift. So generous that you would send your only son to die for us, to give that to us. Lord, sometimes we think of gifts in terms of value and cost, how much something costs or how much time something took to make. Lord, this cost you your own child. And any of us who are parents would realize what a cost that would be. There's no amount of money that could be paid to us to give up a child. And Lord, we talk about time and energy that we spend on things that are valuable. You spent all of eternity for this plan of redemption, of how Jesus would redeem us from our sins. What great value that is. And Lord, you extend that gift to us, and I pray, Lord, for those who have not received it yet, for them to open their hands and their hearts and their minds to receive that from you. In Jesus' name.